Welcome to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute, and today we're discussing the future of private healthcare in Australia. In fact, we're tackling some pretty fundamental questions. Does private healthcare have a viable future in Australia? Should it be sustained or should it be allowed to wither? And why have private health costs increased so dramatically so recently? I'm delighted to be joined today by the perfect person to explore these questions, Grattan's Health Program Director, Stephen Duckett. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Paul. Stephen's just published a report with the intriguing title of Saving Private Health. We'll get to your recommendations soon, Stephen, but first I want to go back a step. I want to return to your previous paper for Grattan which mapped out the problems of the private health insurance industry in pretty stark terms. In fact, you say that private health insurance is in a death spiral. What do you mean by that, Stephen? What's the death spiral? Basically what's happening is uh, there's some environmental or contextual factors. Uh, People's wages are basically constant and have been for the last decade. But private health insurance premiums are going up faster than inflation and have been for the last decade. So you're ending up with pressures on family budgets and they're saying, well, do I need to keep my health insurance? And basically the people who are not using their health insurance are dropping their health insurance. And so what we've seen over the last five years is a slow decline in the proportion of of younger people aged under 30 especially, who have health insurance, whilst the proportion of people over that age, it's going up. In fact, every age group under 65 is declining in uh, in their proportion with health insurance and every age group over 65 is uh, increasing its proportion. Now, that particularly matters because older people use health services more than younger people. And so because there are now a greater proportion of older people in the health insurance uh, risk pool in the in the in the population with health insurance, that means the average costs per person go up, which means the average premiums go up, which means more people face fam- pricing pressures and drop their insurance, which means the average premiums go up again, and so we end up with this vicious cycle where each round causes more healthier and younger people to drop health insurance. Okay, so private health insurance premiums are going up because private health costs are going up. And that's where we come to your new report. You've broken down the various drivers of the rising costs of private hospitals. Just run us through those, Stephen. So what we've what we've looked at is how much have, have benefits actually increased uh, over the last decade in, in excess of inflation. And basically about two-thirds of the reason that private health insurance premiums are going up, the reason benefits are increasing, is because of private hospital costs. So there are more, we're spending, the health insurers are spending more uh, on private hospitals than they used to be. The second biggest reason is actually doctors, that the the medical gaps, the medical out-of-pocket, the medical costs that uh, private health insurers are paying account for about 14% of the increase in uh, private health insurance benefits over the last decade. And the remaining two bits are 
to do with um, private private patients in public hospitals, about 10%, and uh, prosthesis charges, about 10%. Okay, so let's break that down a bit. And I'm particularly interested in what you say about doctors and surgeons. You say greedy doctors are part of the problem here. Greedy is a pretty strong word. What what do you mean by that? Well, in the past when doctors, uh, when there have been stories in the papers about uh, what I call greedy doctors uh, charging huge amount of monies and people mortgaging their house and so on, the AMA talks about egregious billing. Well, I can barely pronounce the word egregious, and uh, so I thought, well, let's let's be a bit clearer and call a spade a spade. There is a handful, a small proportion of doctors who we have labelled greedy, and they're the doctors that charge more than twice the schedule fee. So the government sets the Medicare benefit schedule fee, uh, about a quarter of doctors in hospitals uh, charge that and that's all they charge, about another 20 or so percent charge about 25 percent above the schedule fee and that's what the Department of Veterans Affairs pays and then there's more that charge 50 percent above the schedule fee and so on and so forth. But only 7 percent of all services, be they pathology services, radiology services, anaesthetics, surgery, psychiatry, only 7 percent of all services are billed at more than twice the schedule fee. And it's a similar proportion of doctors. So there's a handful of services and a handful of doctors we're talking about here. But those 7% of services account for almost 90% of all out-of-pockets that patients paid in hospitals uh, in the last year. So we've got a handful of doctors who are really driving the dissatisfaction, really being greedy and really contributing to why patients feel like the health insurance is not uh, delivering what they want. Okay, so it's only a small minority, but they're having a big and detrimental impact. What can be done? Isn't this just the market operating, Stephen? Well, markets, Paul, require perfect knowledge. Uh, In first-year economics, uh, you, you learn about many buyers, many sellers, perfect knowledge, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, this implies that a patient can negotiate with their specialist for what fee they're going to charge. And you this is just not the reality. Patients are in a powerless position. They're, they're, they have to trust their doctor. They have to trust the GP. They think they're going to the right place. And then they end up in the waiting, in the waiting room. They end up in the consulting room and they don't even know what the bill is going to be uh, until they come out. Similarly, when they have their surgery, they might be told a little bit about uh, what their bill is going to be, but they may not know the full extent. What the federal government has said is, oh, let's have a pamphlet, or what? sorry, what the AMA has said is, let's have a pamphlet where the, the patient can sort of ask the doctor, but that doesn't help. And, you know, I don't know anybody who thinks that paper-based pamphlets are the answer to anything these days. And similarly, the Commonwealth Government has said, oh, let's have a website. Well, the website's voluntary. The website may or may not tell you the full fees. And and the problem is it's not only the surgeon or the principal specialist we're talking about. We end up with the anaesthetist, the assistant surgeon, and the candlestick maker, in a sense, all of them putting in their own bills. So, you know, the answer is not 
to say, oh, the patient should just man up and, you know, be tough and, and whatever. That's just not going to happen. And so what we've got to say is who has the power? So all of these other strategies, these other strategies about websites and pamphlets and all that sort of stuff, about transferring the responsibility from the people who've got power to do something, the government, the doctors, the hospitals, the insurance companies, to people who don't have power to do anything about it, namely the patients. So what we've said is instead we've got to have someone powerful negotiate with the doctors about what the fees are going to be. And we said the right person to do that is the hospital. The hospital appoints the doctor to the hospital. The, host, the, host, the doctor needs the hospital. Uh, the, doc, the hospitals have a management infrastructure. They want to actually monitor what the doctors are doing and so on. And so we're saying that the doctor, the hospital should, should negotiate with the doctors what fees the doctors are going to charge and then the hospital should have a single bill the hospital should issue a single bill to the patient and that should include the doctors, the, the pharmacy, the physio, the pathology, the radiology and everything. And the hospital should say to the patient, when the patient books, look at this hospital, this is what we charge and given your level of insurance, you might have to pay an extra $10 a day or $100 a day or $1,000 over the course of your whole treatment. But that's it, folks. And so the hospital will bear the responsibility of negotiating the fees and issuing the bill. A single bundled bill. I can hear every person who's ever been to a private hospital in Australia cheering at that suggestion, Stephen. But you also uh, go to the issue of private hospitals themselves and suggest that they need to lift their game. In what way? Well, every time you talk about these things, everybody said, oh, look, the private sector is more efficient than the public sector. And, you know, and while I was writing the report, the report, I saw any number of claims in the media about that. And I didn't ever respond because we were just working on it. I said, well, let's actually check the data. Well, of course, the data are hard to find. Um, but what we do have is data on length of stay. And so what we did was we looked at the length of stay that uh, patients stay in hospitals. And it won't surprise you to know that for maternity care, uh, if you're going for a baby uh, to a private hospital, you'll stay a day or so longer than if you go to a public hospital. Mm. And everybody knows that. And everybody says, oh, that's part of the, the value proposition. Well, the question is, should the taxpayer subsidise that or not? But I'll come back to that. Anyway, then we looked at hip replacements. And again, when you just look at the raw data, it looks like private hospitals, the patients in private hospitals stay shorter say, a shorter length of stay than, uh, than patients in public hospitals. But then when you look behind the, the sort of the, the, the frontline measure, you discover that one of the reasons for this difference is that in public hospitals, a significant proportion of people have hip replacements essentially in an emergency, whereas almost no patients in private hospitals have hip replacements in an emergency. It's all planned. It's all uh, scheduled in advance. And, of course, there's a big difference in the length of stay between uh, acute and elective um, uh, hip replacements. But, and so once you take that into account, the patients in the public sector, in the public hospitals, stay shorter. And, in fact, again, there's about a one-day difference once you've taken everything into account, emergency, age, sex, complications, everything into account, hip replacement patients in the public sector stay about a day shorter. And then we looked at everything, and it's the same. There's about a 9% difference 
uh, for all patients in length of stay with the public patients, public hospital patients staying uh, shorter. And for overnight patients, it's about a day, again, uh, difference that uh, private hospitals patients stay a day longer. And what we know is that length of stay is not a bad predictor of costs. And so we said, look, it's not the case that private sector, private hospitals are more efficient than public hospitals. It's the other way around. Public hospitals are more efficient than private hospitals. Okay, that's valuable insight, I reckon, that the popular conception is in fact a misconception about the the relative efficiencies between the private and public hospital systems. But if the private hospitals should in fact become more efficient, how can they do that, Stephen? What should be done? Well, 30 years ago in Victoria, we introduced a scheme called activity-based funding where we said patients shouldn't, uh, hospitals shouldn't be paid on the basis of what they'd like to be paid or what they used to be paid or what their friends want to pay them or whatever, they should be paid on the basis of the patients they treat. And so there's this system of of classifying patients called diagnosis-related groups, and that's been used for paying patients, uh, paying hospitals in Victoria since 1993. It's, It's used nationally. And there's an independent body nationally that sets the price, and it's called the National Efficient Price. And that's what the Commonwealth uses to pay uh, for growth in public hospital activity right throughout Australia. What we're saying, and that is, that, sorry, that system has driven massive improvements in efficiency. We're saying the same should happen with private hospitals. The Independent Hospital Pricing Authority should set an efficient price for private hospitals, and that's what they should be paid. They shouldn't be able to say, oh, we're, you know, we, we deserve more because we're nice, but sure, they might deserve more because they've got better amenity and so on that basically there should be a national efficient price and we should use that to drive efficiency in the private hospital system just as we've driven efficiency in the public hospital system. You also identify something called low-value care as a problem in private hospitals. What What is that and why is it a problem? Not everything that goes on in hospitals is necessary care. So you often have, uh, for example, uh, there's an excess rate of hysterectomies in private hospitals, similarly for arthroscopies of the knee, uh, where these indications, uh, you can say, this procedure is necessary in these circumstances and probably unnecessary in these circumstances. And a group at the University of Sydney has done some good work comparing the rates of uh, unnecessary care or low-value care or no-value care in private hospitals compared to public hospitals and there's a much greater rate in private hospitals. And so we're saying, look, if we want to improve efficiency, it's not only does the patient stay too long, but should the patient be there in the first place? And what we've said is at the moment the Commonwealth Government forces private health insurers to pay for every admission to a hospital other than uh, cosmetic surgery, pay for every admission to to a private hospital regardless of whether it's necessary or not. And we think we've got to be able to allow private insurers to start questioning whether everything that's going on in the private hospitals is worth it. So let's get to the bottom line, Stephen. What sort of savings have you been able to identify that could be made to the cost of private hospitals and private care in Australia? So when you put together the two the two uh, sources of savings, if you put, look at the length of stay savings and you look at the low-value care savings, we think there's about $2 billion of extra 
of savings to be made that uh, of wasteful spending that's happening in the private hospitals every year. Two billion dollars a year. Two billion a year, about half, not quite, roughly speaking, but about half uh, from each. And we've been conservative in this. You know, in the in the case of uh, the length of stay savings, we think it's more more than one point five billion. But but we've we've shrunk our numbers so that we're conservative, so we're not making claims that we can't support. Nonetheless, that's a very big figure. How does that translate for patients, for consumers? What might it mean for private health insurance premiums? Well, as I said right at the start of this, health insurance premiums have been going up faster than inflation for every year for the last decade. What we're saying is we can drop health insurance premiums by between 7 and 10%. This is a massive change in what people, in what's been happening in the past, and it should lead to a massive transformation and have, might even attract people back into health insurance. So a 7%, 7 to 10% saving is something to actually write home about. Indeed. Uh, that goes to an implicit message in this report, Stephen, or maybe it's not so implicit after all, and that is that private health is worth saving. But I want you to address another option, Stephen, what do you say to the idea that private health insurance should no longer get public money, that all those billions of dollars of taxpayer subsidies should actually be redirected to bolstering the public health system? After all, we've got a so-called universal health insurance system in Australia called Medicare. So why are the public also contributing to a private health system? So there are a couple of ways I can answer that, Paul. One is to say, watch this space. Um, we're, we're doing another report, uh, which is coming out uh, in next week or so, and the other is to say go back and read what we said uh, in the middle of the year. We did a working pa paper where we said, look, there are a number of reasons why you might decide to subsidise, uh, but you've got to be really clear about what you think you're getting for your money. Mm. So, Stephen, just in summing up, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that your findings have been accepted that your recommendations have been implemented and that private health insurance has indeed been saved. Just describe for me this new and better version of private health in Australia. So I'll start with a patient. At the moment, a patient gets deluged by bills and bills and bills from everybody and the bills dribble in way after they've been discharged from hospital. What we're saying is one bill, one bill covers everything issued by the private hospital and, in a sense, gets sent to the private health insurer. So from a patient's point of view, wow. The second thing from a patient's point of view <clears throat> is to say no surprise out-of-pockets, no surprises anymore, folks. You ring up the hospital to book your admission and the hospital will say this is what it's going to cost. We've got a weird system in Australia where health insurance, you, you sign up for an excess and then you end up paying way more than that. It's just absurd. So from a patient's, it's one bill, no surprises. From the industry, the, you know, the, the efficient private hospitals are going to say, yes, you know, we're not going to have, we're going to have a, a private health scheme which might actually work. We've, we're now efficient we're now 
people might be coming back into health health insurance because of declining premiums, help our bottom line, help our occupancy, and so that's great. Most doctors will say, this is great. You know, I am sick of being tarred with the same brush about all these greedy doctors. I want to just bill what I think is appropriate and is fair and reasonable and similar to what everybody else charges and I just want to get out of the paperwork and all that sort of stuff. So and the, from the Commonwealth's point of view or from the, the taxpayer's point of view, we've now got a much more efficient industry. So it's actually good for the economy. So this has a set of benefits. The losers are inefficient hospitals, greedy doctors, and I'm not sure I'm going to cry about that. Thank you, Stephen. Thanks for your work on this report and for your explanations today. And I should emphasise that the report we've been talking about today is actually called Saving Private Health One, because as Stephen mentioned, next week we'll be publishing another report, Saving Private Health Two, which drills into recommendations to make private health insurance viable. And I look forward to the podcast about that report too, Stephen. And if you, dear listener, would like to listen to earlier Grattan podcasts or read Stephen's Saving Private Health report or indeed any of our other reports and articles on health policy and a whole lot more besides, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.